The Fail On Podcast, episode 010. Imagine if this month you did business with every customer you've ever done business with. How big would this month be? Welcome to the Fail On Podcast, where we explore the hardships and obstacles today's industry leaders face on their journey to the top of their fields through careful insight and thoughtful conversation. By embracing failure, we'll show you how to build momentum without being consumed by the result. Now, please welcome your host, Rob Nunnery. Hey there, and welcome to the show that believes you are destined for more and that failing your way to an inspired life is the only way to get there. Today, we're sitting down with Joey Coleman. He's an entrepreneur, an incredible speaker, and founder of Design Symphony and the creator of the First 100 Days Methodology. Joey transforms businesses by helping them turn customers into raving loyal fans in the first 100 days. We'll be discussing how the quality of your life is in direct proportion to the amount of uncertainty you are willing to have in your life. He discusses how customer retention is the absolutely most overlooked aspect of business, and he shares his mission of changing the way that businesses are structured with a much larger emphasis on retention rather than acquisition. But first, if you'd like to stay up to date on all the Fail On podcast interviews and key takeaways from each guest, Simply go to failon.com and sign up for our newsletter at the bottom of the page. That's failon.com. Hey there, and welcome to the Fail On Podcast. I feel very fortunate for the opportunity to chat with today's guest, Joey Coleman. Joey is the founder of Design Symphony, a customer experience branding firm that helps organizations create breathtaking interactions for their customers. In short, Joey helps companies keep their customers, and he does it through a methodology called the first 100 days, which we'll dig into in just a bit. But Joey, thanks for joining us today, and welcome to the Fail On Podcast. Oh, it is my pleasure, Rob. I really appreciate you having me on the show. It's my pleasure. So just for a little context, we're sitting in Joey's suite at the Grand Hyatt in San Diego, because Joey's in town for a keynote at Social Media Marketing World, correct? Yes, yes. A fantastic event put on by... Michael Stelzner and Phil Mershon and just wrapped that up late last night with the final party that I, th- I think ended around 2 a.m. And it was a great event, about 4,000 people from 55 countries, I think, when it was all said and done or something like that. I mean, it was insane. It it's was crazy just how big it's gotten. Incredible. Yeah. Great group of people. Very welcoming, especially for the newbie who is the keynote and yet has 67 followers on Twitter, or at least at the time of the keynote. They were very kind. One of the guys said, you were trending. And I was like, wow, <laughs> I feel like I've arrived. So it was very nice. They were very gracious to let a complete novice into their ranks. Yeah, that's funny. I was going to mention that because we were talking about that before we got on the line is is you typically with your social media, you're pretty protective and you, you really only have people that you're connected with that you've actually met in person that you've had a conversation with that you know. Correct. Yeah, that's been my philosophy with Facebook and LinkedIn from day one. I only accepted friend requests of people that I had actually met in person. Mm-hmm. And where that was really great with LinkedIn, especially in the beginning, is lots of times people would go on LinkedIn and they'd say, oh, I want to get connected to Bob. Do you know Bob? Mm-hmm. And as I noticed as the years went on, people would actually say in their message to me about getting an introduction, do you know him or is it somebody that you just accepted the request? 
I'm like, no, of course I know them. Like, why would I accept a request from somebody that I didn't know? I must admit my thinking on that is evolving. I don't know that I would categorize my original position as a fail, but it certainly has evolved into, you know, getting ready here in in the very short time frame. And by that, I mean within the next week to reevaluate what my criteria is for accepting a friend request on certainly LinkedIn, you know, followers on Twitter, absolutely. And Instagram of which Twitter and Instagram I've almost been entirely on for almost a whole week now. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see. So are you looking to grow your social media platform for promotion for future projects? You know, I think the thing that I've realized is it's certainly that's an added benefit, but that's not the purpose or the drive. The purpose or the drive is I'm a big believer in the message of we need to treat our customers better. And I get the pleasure of traveling all over the world, doing keynotes, leading workshops, teaching people how to do a better job of retaining their customers and delivering remarkable experiences to them. If I'm excited about standing on stage in front of an audience and sharing that message with people that I've never met before, why wouldn't I be excited about increasing the scope of that message by delivering it via social media? And so I think that's more the driving factor than any. I am. I do not envision ever being the guy who's promoting stuff in tweets all the time and you know, that kind of thing. Getting yeah, paid yeah. for. I mean, maybe, maybe because I'm open to whatever comes in the future, but that is certainly not the intention. Right now, it's all about how can I share this message and methodology more broadly with a hope of getting more people to change the way they run their businesses, which is my end goal. Because I believe if we improve the customer experience in your business, your competitors then have to improve to keep up with you. And then an entire industry improves. Well, when your industry improves, people who do business with you that also do business in other industries start to expect that level of experience. So all boats rise together. And that's really the the life mission, if you will, as it relates to this message and getting it out to as many people as possible. That's cool. So I definitely want to dig into the first 100 days methodology. Sure. But just to give the audience a little bit more context about you and your background, you have a <laughs> you have a really crazy, <laughs> diverse background. Eclectic, one yeah. might say. <laughs> one might say. <laughs> yes. But, you know, all the way from working with the CIA, the Secret Service, to being an attorney, to working in corporate America, to teaching college classes, like yeah. the list goes on. It's been a crazy ride. So, tell us about that evolution. How did it start and what brought you along? Sure. If it makes sense, I'll give you a little bit of a chronology and then we can dive into any aspect that seems interesting. So, growing up, I grew up in a family of politicians and lawyers and had this idea that I wanted to study government and international relations. So that was my major in undergrad. After undergrad, I went immediately to law school, which my father was a criminal defense lawyer. I always knew I wanted to go to law school. Didn't know I always wanted to practice law, but felt there were some real benefits to the education and that way of thinking. Went straight to law school in Washington, D.C. while I was there. Ended up working with the Secret Service, the White House, and the CIA. Incredible experiences. Got to work on some really fun and fascinating issues as a young man in my early 20s being exposed and in front of things that people would go a whole lifetime and never experience. So it was absolutely incredible. After that, I graduated from law school and immediately went to work for a basically a for-profit think tank 
consulting business where I worked in their sales and marketing division, convincing Fortune 500 senior execs to join our membership. After that, went back to Iowa, where I grew up, practiced law with my dad for about five years, doing criminal defense, courtroom litigation work, hometown where I grew up, yeah, a little town in northwestern Iowa called Fort Dodge. But we traveled from there, our practice, we had clients all over the country, and would kind of go where, where folks found themselves in predicaments with law enforcement. We'll say that. And then after that, moved to Massachusetts, spent a semester up there teaching, doing executive education courses while I was there, got a job offer to come work at a promotional products company. That moved me back to DC, worked there very briefly before leaving that business and going on to start my own marketing and branding business, where I focused predominantly on logo creation and websites and things like that. In doing that, I realized that businesses can differentiate on price and that's a race to the bottom. They try to differentiate on quality and thanks to the total quality movement in the 80s, everybody expects high quality. They try to differentiate on their online presence, but now we live in a world where everybody expects 24-7, 365 access. So what, what else could you differentiate on? And I realized the last great differentiator is the experience that your customers have. It is difficult, if not impossible, for your competitors to mimic. It creates a deep emotional connection, which I think in an increasingly digital world, that is something that human beings are craving more today than any point in human history. And it's really fun to work on the experience side because it's about how can I make this customer feel something that is unexpected, that touches them deeply, and if I really do my job right, is so unique, is so remarkable that they want to tell all their friends about it, whether that be in person or on social media or whatever methods of communication they might use. So it's just kind of evolved. And through throughout this entire process, people often ask me, well, Joey, what this is such a disparate career. How, how does one go from, you know, working in the White House to defending alleged criminals, alleged criminals, <laughs> to teaching executive education programs, to designing logos, to speaking on stages around the world? And it's like, to me, and of course, hindsight is always twenty twenty. the thread that connects all of these is pretty obvious. And it's, I have and am and will be a student of the human condition for my entire life. Why do people do the things they do? Why do they believe the things they believe? Why do they feel the way they feel? And what can we do to acknowledge those observations, to investigate deeply into those observations, and then to use that information that we glean to personalize our communications and our interactions with them going forward? No, I love it. So just for a bit more context, when did you start that branding agency? Was that And was that your first foray into kind of starting your own business? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I, I work, my dad has his own law practice, had his own law practice. So that, that was kind of my first pseudo and entrepreneurial venture. But yeah, when I started the branding business in January of 2002, so it's, you know, at this point, 15 plus years that we've been at it, hard to believe. That was really the first, I would say entrepreneurial venture per se. A lot of people I've talked to have, so when they got to that point of wanting to start kind of their own thing, it was because they came from a place of like a 
place of pain almost because sure. they have been doing a lot of things that they <laughs> sure. that that weren't in alignment with what they wanted yeah. to do, and they knew they had a greater potential. Did you have that same kind of thing, or was it more of just the natural progression for you? For me, it felt a little more like the natural progression. I, I don't mean to imply that I haven't experienced pain in kind of those moments of what do I do. I experience those all the time and even to this day. But at the time, a little bit more backstory without getting too crazy, lest I walk myself into a corner here. <laughs> I went to work for a promotional products company that let's just say was doing things that weren't in alignment with either my values or my interpretation of the law. And so I said to them, I'm out, I'm going to go. And I had just started this job two weeks before that. Living in Washington, D.C., having signed a lease, a one-year lease on an apartment befitting of the six-figure salary I was earning with this really grand vision of what I was going to do. And now I'm unemployed because I quit, not because I was fired. And I have no income coming in. And I'm in Washington, D.C., which at the time I was not a member of the bar. And so I can't really easily go back to practicing law. Or I was not a member of the bar there to practice law there. I was a member of the bar in Iowa. And so it was kind of this state of, well, wait, I haven't been practicing law for about six, eight months now. I'm not sure that I want to go back to doing it. If I want to go back to doing it, I want to go back to Iowa. And now I'm in D.C. with 11 and a half months left on a lease and needing to pay rent. And so I did two things. Number one, I did some legal temp work, which is a white collar version of a sweatshop where you're paid a good rate for the first 40, 40 to 80 hours, you get time and a half. Over 80 hours, you get double time. So my goal was to log 100 billable hours a week. I was working seven days a week, trying to make as much money as possible to cover my expenses. At the same time, I had these ideas of how businesses should be run and what they should do for their marketing and branding. And I thought, well, why don't I put my money where my mouth is and start my own? And so I did. And what would happen is I'd go to the law firm, I'd work in the morning, I'd do a lunch meeting with a prospective client, convince them to work together, go back to the firm, work till about midnight, go home, work till about 4 a.m. on the client work on the design side, sleep from four to six and start the day over again. Two hours a night. Yeah. For months on end. And it was beating me up terribly. But it was an ends to a means. And I, and I knew that I was trying to build something. Six months later, the design business had grown enough to where I could quit the legal work and do the design work full time. And I haven't looked back. It's interesting. So I have this conversation a lot as well. So the way you seem to have approached that whole getting into business was doing it kind of in your off hours, right? Right. So it was, it was a much more practical approach. You're going to cover- Side hustle, if you side will. Side hustle, if you totally. will. Yeah. So totally. you're going to cover your bills with your day job. Yep. And then your off hours, you're going to bust it and hustle to get something else started. Totally. So I don't know if it's just me. There's some other people. There's, so there's two kind of schools of thought of this, right? <laughs> yeah. One is just say, screw it, burn the ships. Yep. Let's just go all in, right? Yep. Which is not very practical for most people. For a lot of people, in right, my, In my opinion. It's- kind of the way I got into entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. But with that said, I think, you know, everybody's wired differently and it's definitely not the right thing to do. If you're, you know, fortunately for me, my wife was very supportive at the time. She nice. had a ton of belief in me, still does. 
which I'm very grateful for. Right. That's incredible. Yeah. I I'm married to a similar woman that the, if I may, and I, not to take us off track, support of the entrepreneur from their loved ones, whether that be their partner or their parents or their children or whoever is kind of in that most inner circle nucleus of people is so vital, so vital. I mean, there are so many entrepreneurs that I know that would be nothing if it were not for their spouse. And that encouragement and that support is tremendous. And to your point, I think, you know, at the time this was going on for me, I was, I was single. I mean, I was dating somebody, I wasn't married. I didn't have children. And so the, the criteria for what I was willing to do and subject myself to were very different than what I'd be willing to do today. Sometimes I think your, your passion is so burning and your motivation is so great that, yeah, burn the ships, go all in, go crazy is the way to do it. Other times, slow and steady wins the race, building it on the side. And I, I personally don't think there's a right or a wrong. What I will say, though, and a little bit because I know I end up thinking of it almost as like hustle porn that is in the business world today. There has to be an ebb and flow. The body is not designed, and this is something I've come to in recent years. The body is not designed to function on two hours of sleep a night for weeks and months on end. It's just not. And when you're in your 20s, you can rock that and make that happen, maybe even into your 30s. Now that I'm you know, fast approaching my mid-40s, it's destructive. And it's just not good. And I think more entrepreneurs need to be addressing that and saying, you know, sleep is good. Eating healthy is good. It is not a sign of weakness. I mean, I used to say all the time, I'll sleep when I'm dead. You know, when I first started my business and even later years, I mean, it's probably as recently as four years ago, I worked in a co-working space in DC that was founded by my wife. And there were a couple of other entrepreneurs that were night owls like me. And we used to joke at the end of the night, who's going to get the gold medal? And that was the person who left last. And it just fed on each other. I mean, I tracked the number of all-nighters I pulled in a year. And at my peak, it was 38. That's crazy. It's not sustainable. You think it's sustainable, but it's not. And going back to that conversation of spouses, it took my now wife, then girlfriend slash fiance to say, you think that you're the same person after an all-nighter, but you're not. And I couldn't see it. When we're in it, we can't see it. I, I think it's very difficult to see it. And that's why I think that support of loved ones and that inner circle and the, the close people, whether it's a roommate or whoever, whoever, whoever is good at calling you on your shit, you know, I think it's really important for entrepreneurs to have someone like that in their life. So what would you say to somebody, a listener that's sitting at home and it's like, you know, they have a job mm-hmm. nine to five to support their family, but it's definitely not what they want to do. And maybe they have a a loved one that's not so supportive because they know that they need to take care of the family. Sure. What kind of advice would you give to that person? I think you have to be really honest and have the conversation with your spouse. Married couples, I think often, hopefully figure this out, that there are times where you need to sit down with your partner and say, look, we have to have a conversation. And it's a conversation that neither of us is excited to have. But if we don't have this conversation today, the end result is going to be horrific for us, for our family. 
I think that, and I totally respect and I totally understand that people have to make the choices that work for them. The entrepreneurial lifestyle and starting your own venture is a lonely road. It is a chaotic road. It is a road ripe with uncertainty and fear-inducing doubt. That being said, I believe if you are doing something that you hate, that you're miserable at, that you know isn't the reason you were put on this planet, after a certain amount of time, and I'll define that as probably six months of doing that, if you're still doing it, my empathy for you remains, but my sympathy for you wanes. Because at some point, we have to take responsibility for our own lives. And people often, I find myself in conversations, especially with entrepreneurs and folks that are thinking about becoming entrepreneurs that have families, saying, well, my kids, I have to provide for my kids. If I don't, if I'm not making this six-figure job and I go and we, we suddenly have less money, my kids will suffer. Okay, take that out 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. What are you teaching your children? You know, I have two little boys, a three and a half year old and a 16 month old. And I do my best to pretty regularly keep in mind what am I teaching them? Not only by what I say, but by what I do. And if you are working in a soul sucking, unfulfilling job that you know is not your life's work and you're doing it because of the paycheck and the lifestyle you've grown accustomed to. That is your choice. We live in a world where free will and choice is the greatest gift that humanity has. However, if you fast forward out 30 years and your son or your daughter was in that job and you're the kind of person that would give them the advice of, no, don't, don't do that. Don't make that mistake. They're not. I think the likelihood of them listening to you and believing you at that time is infinitesimally small because they have decades of watching you. And so if anytime somebody says, well, I'm doing it for my kids, I like to raise my hand and call BS because it's like, no, because what you're saying is that your kids' safety and security and life is more important than yours. And we can have a whole discussion about whether that's a good choice or not. However, don't say that that's your motivation when you want them to live a better life than you did and you're not making the choices you would want them to make. Yep. Let's say a hypothetical world, right? Yeah. You're, you're in that position. You have a, let's say you're still working at a law firm, right? Yeah. You're, you're an attorney. You're making good money. Uh huh. But you know in your heart that's not why you're here. You're here yeah. to do bigger things, yep. to make a bigger impact. But same situation. You've got your two children. You've mm -hmm. got your wife who sounds very supportive, which is great. Yeah, she's incredibly supportive. What actions would you take to change your circumstance? I think you need to look at what is the level of risk and uncertainty you are willing to tolerate. You and your family, right? I mean, yeah. Well, first you. Okay. First you. Because it's really easy and quick to say, well, no, 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 my spouse, my spouse needs Kind of a cop this out. much money a month, you know, you haven't seen, you know, the credit card bills and the <laughs> shopping trips and blah, blah, blah. And men do this in particular, and it's completely ridiculous. Don't push it onto your spouse when in reality you have a fear of the uncertainty. And so I would say that the first step is to have a really honest conversation with yourself about what you're willing to do. Tony Robbins 
has a great saying that I heard him say many times, and it's really stuck with me. And it's that the quality of your life is directly proportional to the amount of uncertainty you are willing to have in your life. So the more uncertainty you're willing to have in your life, the greater the quality of your life. And so have that conversation and figure out. For some people, it's about, I need to paycheck every two weeks. I just need that certainty. For some people, it's about the amount of that paycheck. For some people, it's about how many months of our burn rate do we have in the bank account? How much do we have saved up for the future, for our kids' education, whatever? Look at the metrics that matter to you. Get really clear on those. Then have a conversation with your spouse. What I think you'll, most people, most of your listeners would often find is that the metrics that matter to you are different than the metrics that matter to your significant other. Most people never talk about that. And most people make ridiculous presumptions and assumptions about their spouse's number or need for certainty or security without realizing that often it's lower than what they think it is. And when you have those conversations, Suddenly, it's like, oh, wait a second. This is a lot more doable than I thought. When it comes to kids, I think it depends on their age. There's no need for me to have a conversation with my three-and-a-half-year-old about our monthly <laughs> finances. It's just it's, it's inappropriate. Now, that being said, you know, teaching him about money and letting him to learn about those things, absolutely. But I'm not going to sit down with him and say, well, daddy is currently making X thousands a month. And if he starts his own business, it might be Y. What do you think about that? And I think... What kids really want, in my experience, and this is whopping, you know, two kids' experience, but I'm one of seven kids. So I've, I'm a student of the philosophy that says we need to respect children more than we do and give them more credit than we do. The money doesn't matter as much to them as it does to us. We're the, the parents and the adults are the ones that have equated love with money, not the child. The child is a malleable sponge that is responsive to the inputs that are coming into their life. Most kids, and we see this at the holidays, this gets proven time and time again. The holidays are a birthday party with a little kid and they open all the presents and then what do they do? They play with the wrapping paper and the boxes right? This is universal. This is global. This is the human condition. So when people are saying, oh, well, you don't understand my kids, like they have a quality of life they've grown accustomed to, mm, I'd push back on that assumption. Along your journey, what have been the biggest struggles? Maybe you could call them failures or mistakes along the way that, that have really led you down your path to, to being where you are. Sure. I think there's so many. There's so many. It's interesting, and I, and I know the, the theme of the show is about failure. Failure is an interesting word for me, and I, and I, don't, I don't mean to approach this for, as a semantics game. One of the things I was thinking about in advance of our conversation is how would I define failure? And I would define failure is when you do everything in your power to achieve an outcome, and it doesn't happen, and you, from a state of despondence, give up. The distinction there for me is that it's okay to give up and quit. That's something that's a, you know, somebody asked recently, what's a belief that you used to have that you don't have anymore? I grew up in a family, as I mentioned, with seven kids. And one of my, one of the, the Coleman family rules, if you will, was never quit. And I totally understand why my parents and my father in particular instilled that philosophy. As I've grown up, I've 
come to challenge that philosophy a little. I do think there are times when quitting is the right choice. I don't think you should quit without being very conscious of the decision you're making, without trying to double down, without recognizing if, am I quitting because this isn't happening as quickly as I want or to the degree I want or with the level of effort that I want? Or am I quitting because I've done a rational and emotional analysis of the situation and said, this is not serving my best interest anymore? Can you give some actual examples of when you think it would be appropriate to say that, to say, okay, this I've analyzed the situation. This isn't working. Maybe we should explore something else. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about a context that I think comes up for a lot of parents. And I think it's in many ways where for many of us, this is conditioned. You decide to play on a sports team in junior high or high school. And you get into it a little bit and you don't like it as much as you did. And you know, I want to quit. And often parents are like, no, no, you can't quit. To me, that's fine for that season. Doesn't mean you need to play football next year, right? Because I think one of the things we need to look at as human beings is when we give our word or give our commitment, what is the length for the commitment? I'm in a mastermind group, and one of the things we talk about early on is what is the commitment to the group? And I said, I'll be real clear. My initial commitment is one year. I will stay in the group without leaving, guaranteed for one year. We meet once a quarter. At the end of that year, I will reevaluate. Now, sitting here today, my gut instinct is I will re-up. I don't want you to think I'm one and done. Like I have no plans to exit. But let's be very clear on what the commitment is. I think that comes up with jobs a lot. People take a job and they're like, oh God, this isn't what I thought it would be, but I can't quit. I gave my word that I would take this job. Well, you gave your word that you would take the job, but the company or the employer you're working for gave their word that the job would be X and now it's Y. So you're keeping your word with someone who doesn't keep their word. I don't think you just walk in and peace out. I'm out of here. I quit today. That's it. But I think then having a conversation with your employer and saying, hey, look, by the way, this is what we talked about and this is what's happening. There's a delta between the two. Let's talk about that. It ties actually to a thing that I think is a major problem with businesses today, which is setting and managing expectations. I think a lot of people go into things without really fully thinking them through. And it's a completely different dynamic when you go in and you say, okay, my commitment is to do X. And then you stick with that and you don't quit. But you build in milestones where you can stop and evaluate the decisions and choices you've made and then decide to move forward or not, depending on your evaluation. Got it. That's good. So just kind of along the lines of impact in your life, if you had to, just transition a little bit. Sure. If you had to name a single person, could be maybe a couple of people that have had the most profound impact on your life, who would they be and what did you learn from them? Oh my gosh, there's so many. I don't know that I've met a human being that hasn't had an impact on my life. I try to live by a philosophy that everyone has something to give and everyone has something to teach. And I try to go into my interactions with my fellow humans open and responsive to what those teachings might be. When you ask the question, a couple that come to mind immediately, my wife Barrett, incredible, incredible human being, has been an entrepreneur longer than I have, is unconditionally loving unconditionally supportive, is the most generous, caring, selfless human being I have ever met. 
I am graced by her presence on a daily basis. Profound impact. She's my wife. She's my partner. She's my best friend. She's my confidant. She is beyond compare human being. My parents were tremendously loving and caring and supportive, each in their own ways. I mean, my my mom was more, I will say, the, the vision of femininity that is nurturing and caring and protecting and supporting. My father skewed much more masculine with the get out there and get it done, we don't quit. But that combination, the interwoven nature of their combined philosophies on parenting, as well as their chosen approaches to parenting that they collectively developed over 40 plus years now across seven children, was incredible. When I started the business and, you know, keep in mind, I had been a a lawyer, which is following in my father's footsteps. When I left the practice of law and told him I was going to move, he said, well, that's great. Sounds wonderful. That's impressive. Oh my God. It was amazing. amazing. It was amazing. There was no, you really need to stay here. There was no, you're wasting your life away. Any of the stuff we see in the movies, you know, that traditional thing, it was Great. Awesome. And by the way, if you get there and it doesn't work, there's always a place back here if you want to come back. That age-old theory, you can never go home again. Well, not really. Here you can. And I was like, wow, really, really powerful and supportive. And then when I started the business, you know, almost a year later, similar thing. It was, how are you doing? Are you, you know, do you need some help with rent? Do you need some help with your car payment? Things like that. And being generous enough to give me financial support where I needed, but also letting me figure it out on my own, not just saying, well, I'll cover all your bills going forward. It was more of a, you know, I'll, I'll help you if you need it, but safety it, net. It, yeah, there's a safety net there, but kind of letting me leap and fly. And I think that was, it was a tremendous gift. So yeah, I mean, th- those are three dad, mom, and my wife that come to mind, but countless countless. We have a lot of common friends. You could name any one of those people and I could tell you dozens of ways they have impacted my life. From many of the people I've talked to, you've you seem to have a really I don't know, I don't know what the right word is, but kind of heartfelt deep connection with other human beings. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you've had to cultivate over the years or is that something that you feel like was instilled from a young age through your parents or how have you developed that? Yeah, wow. It's a really interesting question. It is my belief that it's been there all along. With each passing day, I listen to it and trust it more. There's certainly been periods of times in my life where I didn't listen to it and I didn't honor it. And the more I do, the more I experience magical moments of deep, energetic human connection that I feel blessed to be a part of that I personally believe are available to all of us if we're willing to, for lack of a better way of putting it, crack our hearts open and let the world in. That's powerful. So I know we're hopping around a little bit, but I did want to get back to your mission today while you're on this earth of, and the methodology of the first hundred days. Sure. I would love to hear how basically that was created, how you came up with it, what it means to you and what you hope to do with it for the world. Sure. You know, what's interesting. I believe that 
this time around, this life, part of my, my mission, part of my job is to be a teacher. And at this particular moment, the thing that I am trying to teach is businesses to remember why they started the business in the first place. In most situations, I think, people start businesses to solve a problem and to care for a certain set of people, to provide them with a product or a service to make their lives easier, more convenient, faster, more luxurious, whatever it may be. Is that what you see for most business owners? Because on the other flip side of that, maybe this is the, yeah. the cynic in me, is that yeah. I, I see a lot of people starting businesses for almost the opposite reasons, which is obviously not good, right? Sure. But for more of their own self-interest, more of solving their own problems in terms of having a better lifestyle or more money or... Sure, sure. I think that absolutely happens. But a business doesn't get off the ground and running if it's self-serving. Totally. That may be a genesis for having the, the intestinal fortitude to actually pull the trigger and start. But very quickly, the marketplace will see through that, sometimes faster than others. Sometimes it gets into it a while and you're like, seriously, how is this still going? <laughs> but you know, I think pretty quickly the marketplace sees through that. But I do think many people, when they start and they, you get that first customer, man, you love them and you cherish them and you're thankful for them and it, it's the first check and you're excited and then you get another one and another one and another one and another one and another one. And eventually, you reach a point where they've become a number and it's become a task and a, a duty with a little d, not a duty with a capital D mission. And I think that's when businesses start to fall apart. And that's, you, know, you asked the question about the first 100 days. That's the, the research I've done and the study and the exploring I've done over the last decade and have come to realize that the typical business spends all this time, energy, and effort acquiring new clients in the chase. What can we do to get them, fill the funnel, acquire, get them to convert and become clients? And then they stop paying attention. The customer becomes a number. The project gets handed off to someone who wasn't involved in any of the sales conversations. The amount of time, energy, and effort spent decreases dramatically. And as a result, those customers feel abandoned. In the typical business, regardless of industry, regardless of where you're located in the world, regardless of whether you're product or service, regardless of how long you've been in business, the typical business loses somewhere between 20 and 70% of their customers in the first 100 days of the relationship. Those numbers are staggering. No one is talking about this in the marketplace. Companies are hemorrhaging and no one discusses it. But all you hear about nowadays, especially you know, at some of these conferences like Traffic and Conversion, Social Media Marketing World, it's all about customer acquisition, right? Totally. That's, that's, that's totally. legion. It's Absolutely. marketing funnels. It's how do, we, how do we acquire more customers? And there's such little conversation around customer retention and actually making it an amazing experience for the customer. So Absolutely. I think it's a very valiant project. Oh, I appreciate that. Mission. I appreciate that. What's interesting, you know, you go on Amazon and you search sales books and marketing books. And if you combine those two numbers, there's over a million titles. If you search customer retention, customer success, customer experience, post-sale behaviors, you combine all of those words, it's about 30,000. 
That's unreal. So that alone should be an indicator of the huge disparity that exists in the marketplace, at least as it relates to Amazon, which I look to Amazon as kind of, you know, where is the education base? What's out there? Now shift and go into the typical business. And you have the typical business take their budget, their annual budget, and say, I want to list out all the line items by category. Well, usually number one is salaries for their employees. Number two is often fixed costs like the office space and the equipment. And number three is marketing and sales. Retention usually doesn't even make the list. It's such a negligible number. It doesn't even make the list. Or if it does, it is 10, 20, 30 lines down on the budget, if that. Why do you think this is? Because outside of it being one, the right thing to do is creating an amazing experience for the customer. Two, it's it's purely the economics, right? It's like you've already acquired that customer. Why yeah. would you not nurture that customer? That's where the money's being made is on that existing customer. Totally. I think a, a couple of reasons. I think it's not as sexy or there's a belief. Let me rephrase that. There is a belief that it is not as sexy. Most people think that dating is more exciting, more interesting, more enthralling than marriage. That's the analogy. So the courting, the acquiring, the filling the funnel, that's all the dating. That's the chase. That's the exciting piece. When you get on the other side of them saying yes and entering into a committed relationship, the same tricks that you did before don't work as well. (laughs) And there's an expectation that the relationship then goes to a deeper level, which requires more empathy, more connection, more honesty. And I think most businesses aren't as excited about that transition. Additionally, I think the very structure of businesses is designed to do this. You know, in the typical business, the highest compensated people are either the senior management team or the sales team, right? Great. It's about one out of every thousand companies I meet that the sales team is incentivized on retention. That's crazy, isn't it? So stop and think about that. We vote with our dollars, and the dollars of the company are voting for the sales team. Now, let's go to the customer account management or the call center or the retention teams. In the typical business, they are the lowest paid employees. They do not have direct access to the senior management team. They're often hourly. They are not incentivized on retention. And yet, these are the people that are responsible for keeping the lifeblood of the company pumping. They're the front lines. They're They're the front lines. They're the communication. They're the communication. They're the heart and soul of the business. They're the ones that are in place to help the customer achieve the result for which they made the purchase. And yet, the typical business neither honors them, nor respects them, nor gives them a seat at the table to share their perspective and their insights. I think there's some fundamental structural flaws in the typical corporate setup that perpetuate this focus on acquisition to the detriment and exclusion of retention. How would you change that model in terms of just kind of corporate business structure? Sure. I think there's a couple ways. Number one, we need to change the structure. Salespeople need to be incentivized on retention. 
we need to reduce, and sorry, salespeople that might be listening, we need to reduce the initial payout or commission that they get for landing the client and put a big piece on if the client's still there six months later. What if they're not the one servicing the client after acquisition? Doesn't matter. Okay. Doesn't matter. Because here's the deal. They should be setting the expectation properly that the client is able to know in advance how they're going to be treated. And if the account management team truly is not doing their job, which is a glorious scapegoat for most salespeople who have never done the account management job, it's really easy to point to the other side and say they don't know what the hell they're doing when you've never done it. Number one, I would look at the structures of compensation. Number two, I would look at the hierarchical structures within the organization and give the retention and customer experience people a seat at the table, at the executive table. I would have them involved with the conversation. I would stop siloing marketing from sales, from customer experience. I put them all under the same roof in the same room, seated in threes. So a salesperson doesn't sit next to another salesperson. A salesperson sits next to a marketer and an experience manager, right? And that becomes physically the interactions that they're having in the space. Third, I would come in and I would make the customer experience the primary philosophy of the business. It requires, I think, a philosophical shift as to why we are on business, in business, what our priorities are, and how do we make sure that everyone in the company knows those. Now, a typical company thinks nothing of sending a salesperson to a sales training, but they push back like crazy about sending a call center rep to an experience training. Is there any wonder we have issues, <laughs> right? Right. So I think it needs to be a message that comes from the top and from the bottom. You need to hire the right people and you need to make damn well sure that the senior management is all on the same page. And if somebody is not on the same page, that the customer experience is the primary priority of the organization, you need to kick them to the curb. You need to give them a chance to try to learn and get up to speed but I see so many companies that are fully aware of the cancer that is growing inside their business that refuse to get treatment or have an operation to get rid of it. It blows my mind. Lastly, and I realize this is a long answer, but if, if we're looking to, to really change it, I think all these things need to happen. Lastly, it is impossible, I believe, for your employees to deliver a truly remarkable experience if they have never had a truly remarkable experience. CEOs often fly first class. They get car service. They eat in the nicest restaurants. They stay at the finest hotels. Frontline account managers don't. You can't tell your employees to deliver a Ritz-Carlton experience if they've never been to the Ritz-Carlton, let alone stayed at the Ritz-Carlton. So I think what senior management needs to do is find out ways to create remarkable experiences for the employees to give them context for the remarkable experience you're asking them to deliver to your customers. That's a good point. You can't really deliver magic if you've never experienced magic. Totally. Yeah. Totally. And to be really clear for folks that are listening, because I, I can imagine some of the objections now, well, Joey, that's fine and dandy, but that's expensive. And like, how would I ever do that? And, and what would that be like? I've known a couple of CEOs over the years who, you know, they go to these conferences and it's crazy. It's kind of like Hollywood. You show up for the Oscars and you get a bag full of goodies and you get a, the newest iPhone and that celebrity already had four of the newest iPhones. I've seen some really creative CEOs do this where they 
gather the gifts that they're given and that they receive. And then they have a party at the office where they put all those gifts in the boardroom and they let the most junior level employees come in and they reward them for a job well done, hitting that month's numbers or doing whatever they're doing. And they say, guess what? We have a room full of gifts. Go in and pick one. Costs nothing extra. Costs nothing extra. That senior executive wasn't going to do anything other than give that away anyway. And now you're plowing it back into the employees. Additionally, you know, the typical business, the HR department will tell you that it is a magnitude more expensive to hire more employees than to keep our existing employees. It's the same model that applies to customers. Pull some of that money that you would be keeping and plow it into retention efforts. Treat your employees. Something as simple as, you know what, we're going to set it up so that you had to work late tonight. We're going to let you Uber home instead of take a cab home or Lyft home, you know, and give them that experience. The employees are flying to a, a conference. Use the senior executives' miles, which there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of them, to upgrade all the employees to first class and surprise them. Surprise and delight. Surprise and delight. <laughs> so anyway. No, that's awesome. For maybe a listener that's thinking about getting into business or they sure. have a really small business with a team of less than 10 or even less than five, or maybe they're a solo entrepreneur, how can they implement your methodology into their business? What's interesting, I think most businesses have less than 10 employees. Yeah, you know, if we, if we actually look at the yeah. statistics, and, and it's tough because if you, you know, read business magazines, you watch the newspaper, like, oh, this small business with 280 employees. And I'm like, no, that is not a small business. A small business is when your team can be fed by a pizza. That's a small business. When you move to two pizzas, then you're still a small business, but you're growing. If we're talking about you need to build a Domino's in your <laughs> office, okay, you're not a small business anymore. Right, Stop right. it. I understand that's how the government defines small business yeah. in many ways, but come on, enough already. A couple things. I think number one is making the mental shift that experience matters and focusing on that. I think number two is getting a clear assessment of what the current experience is. So mapping out the customer journey from the moment they become a customer through their 100-day anniversary, what are all the things that are happening? You know, I talk in my keynotes about the eight phases that a customer goes through. In the beginning, they assess whether they want to do business with you. And then on day one, they admit that they have a problem. They raise their hand and they either sign on the dotted line or they give you a some money and say, I want your product. I want your service. They then move to the stage of a firm. This is a stage of buyer's remorse where they're wondering that decision that I just made, was it the right decision? Most companies do nothing in the affirm stage, nothing. Huge opportunity to reinforce their decision, make sure they know that they did make a good choice and that you're going to take great care of them. The next phase is the phase that most companies actually pay a little bit of attention to, which is activate the beginning of the relationship when you have a kickoff meeting or that first deliverable and they're like, are they open the box with the product in it? The reason I name this activate is I want you to feel a sense of energy and emotion when they hit that stage where, you know, this is what it's going to be like to do business with us. This is the shock and awe moment. After that, we move into the stage where most businesses lose their customers, which is the acclimate stage. You have to hold their hand. You have to help them navigate your business practice. A lot of people will push back and say, well, Joey, we explained that in the proposal and in the contract and they signed it. 
they didn't read it. (laughs) Just like you don't read that stuff that you sign. You know, you go and you rent a car at the airport and they put that little screen up. You don't read all the things that are there. You just sign it and click accept, you know? So for all these people that are like, oh, my customers, if only they would read what I give them. Well, how about you start doing that in your life? Get really good at it. And then I'll come back to a conversation about whether we should judge your customers for not doing it. So acclimating is all about holding their hand, guiding them through the process. Then we come to the phase of accomplish. Accomplish is when they achieve the result for which they purchased your product or service. It is amazing how few companies pay attention to this. Why did they agree to work with you? Oh, they agreed to work with you to, let's say, a web development company because they wanted a new website. You don't get to say that they've achieved their goal until the site launches. So every day that the site launches delayed or lasts longer or does a partial half-assed launch and isn't fully ready, you don't get to claim that you've hit accomplishment, right? After that, we move to the two phases that are in many ways the holy grail. Adopt, when the customer basically says, I'm all in with you. I'm not going anywhere else. I will be a loyal customer for life. And then advocate when they start referring like crazy. Too many businesses try to jump to advocate way, way, way too early. We've all been on those websites where you sign up for a product or service and then they take you to the squeeze page that says, if you liked our new product, surely you have two or three friends. Provide us their names and emails. And it's like, no, absolutely not. I haven't achieved the result. I haven't even gotten a taste of what it's like to work with you guys. And you want me to refer you? Get out of town. Not going to happen. So I think it's important to step people through the phases and recognize that while everyone has the potential to go through all eight phases, unless you are consciously designing your onboarding system, they're not going to. And if you want to get to the point where you have more referrals than you can handle, well, then you got to treat them well all the way along through the process, not just hope that the stars will align and magically they will introduce you to their Rolodex of friends. (laughs) Not going to happen. So I know you mentioned earlier that, was it 20 to 70% fall off in the first 100 days? Yeah. What should that number be at? Oh, that's interesting. You know, should's a powerful word. The best companies get that number to a single digit percentage. Getting it to zero is is extremely difficult. It can be done, but it can't usually be done quickly. It requires a pretty big investment. I have a, a guy who saw one of my keynotes on YouTube. He's going to be featured in the book I'm writing. And was inspired by this first 100 days message and implemented it with his business. He did that, I think at the time we're recording this, was about 10 months ago. Prior to that, they were losing about five of their newly acquired customers per month. Gosh, is this like a recurring model? Yeah, it's a a recurring retention model, and they were losing about five. It's It's a larger engagement model, so they're higher dollar ticket items, if you will, but they were losing about five a month. Since they implemented this about 10 months ago, they haven't lost a single customer. That's crazy. Now, carry that out to the impact on the bottom line. In the typical business, a 5% increase in customer retention results in a 25 to 100% increase in profits. They've taken their customer retention to 100%. So I fully expect that their annual profits will be well over 100% greater this year. Those are game changers. Game changers. Yeah. So you can start to see results pretty quickly. Like I said, adopt the philosophy, 
map them through and you're off to the races. I wouldn't worry again about getting to 0% defection or 100% retention, but getting it under the double digit. You know, the, the thing people often ask me, they're like, Joey, these numbers are, are scary. I say, you know what's more scary? The typical business owner has no idea what their number is. It's true. That's the terrifying piece <laughs> of this conversation, That's right? True. They have no idea. They've never thought about this. And don't get bogged down in the, well, what's your defection rate in the first 100 days? Look at it monthly. Look at it annually. You know, whatever metrics you have in your business, evaluate it. And I think you'll be surprised, shocked, and saddened at how significant it is. I often say to kind of hammer home the importance of focusing on this. Imagine if this month you did business with every customer you've ever done business with. How big would this month be? It'd be huge. In most businesses, it's three times, five times, 10 times the size of their business if they were still doing business with everyone. That's what's available. And even putting a little bit of thought will drastically increase your it's, it's retention It's tremendous. Right? It's tremendous. I mean, the bar for customer experience on the planet is lying on the ground. <laughs> it's lying on the ground. You just, like, you don't even have to jump over it. You barely have to step over it. You can kind of shuffle over it compared to your competitors and compared to what people are experienced to. So the ability to surprise and delight customers is quite easy. And we live in a world where figuring out ways to do that is even easier. Frankly, you know, we mentioned I was at Social Media Marketing World doing the keynote this week. You know, we live in a world where a significant percentage of customers are sharing intimate personal details and preferences about themselves online in an open public forum. Let's say you have a meeting with a customer. Would it be that much of an inconvenience for you in the 15 minutes before the meeting to go on their LinkedIn profile, go on their Facebook profile, go on Twitter, go on Snapchat, wherever they are existing and presenting themselves, and just see what their last 20 tweets or posts or updates were, and then find a way to bring those up in the conversation. You know, I know you were recently with some good friends of ours down in the Bahamas because I spent five minutes looking at your Facebook profile yep. before our conversation. So now I can talk very specifically. And when you say, oh, I had the chance to, you know, see our mutual friend, Philip McKernan, it's like, great. Yeah, I, I knew that because I saw the pictures. And so now we're able to connect at a deeper level other than what often happens, which is, well, how have things been? Oh, they've been pretty good. Okay, great. Let's talk about a project. You know, it's like, come on, stop even asking. Like, stop pretending that you give a damn and asking if you're not willing to listen to the answer. If you've been working with a client for a while, you should know their spouse's name, their kids' names, their friends, you know, their hobbies, their interests, if they have a favorite sports team, if they have a favorite, you know, thing that they collect, whatever it may be. That's the human connection. They're not as excited about your business as you are. Let's just acknowledge that. Your customers begin doing business with you as a means to achieve a result they have to either relieve a pain point or to make something that they desire achievable. They're not eating, breathing, and sleeping it all day, every day like you are. They're not as excited. But there are things that they are ex as excited about. Find those. Make the conversation about those. It's just caring, right? Just giving totally, a damn. Totally. Yeah, it, 100%. I mean, this isn't, you know, as as they say, this isn't rocket surgery. This isn't, you know, 
surprising, novel, unique, earth-shattering, revolutionary <laughs> philosophy. Don't downplay what you're doing it's here. It's not. It's not. No, you know, and, and, I, and it's really important for me that that message get out because I want people to realize you have this in you. You are hardwired as a human being to care about your fellow human beings. You just have shut that down for so long in so many ways that when you get into business, you think, oh, well, that's not appropriate. You know, it drives me crazy when people, oh, business isn't personal. Bullshit. Everything is personal. Everything is personal. Everything's an opportunity for personal connection. Everything's an opportunity to have a meaningful moment with a fellow human being. And if you're not taking advantage of that, here's the deal. You don't have to, but man, you're missing out. There's so much incredible life experience and interaction and connection that is available to you if you're willing to just open up and make a little of it happen. And like we said, just by caring, it could be the biggest differentiator in your entire market, right? 100%. So for somebody listening that doesn't necessarily have a business, but they're hearing all of this and they're like, this makes a ton of sense, right? Right. How can they apply that to even thinking about what kind of business to start or how to implement? I mean, because it could be a differentiator, right? That could- 100%. They just come at it with this approach, they could be on a trajectory right away. Absolutely. So the first thing I would do is I would start practicing it in your day-to-day life immediately, even before you start the business. So a lot of people who are thinking about starting a business are currently working another job. Well, create incredible experiences in the day job that you have. By the way, eventually, your boss will notice that. You'll probably end up getting promotions and more responsibility and raises and things like that, even in your day job. And you'll build this muscle. You'll build this ability. Then when you start your business you hit the ground running from day one. You've already seen how this works. You've gotten a chance to test some things out because often, not always, but often people start a business in the general industry that they've been working in. Not always, but often. And so practice your ideas on somebody else's time. Don't worry. You know, some people are like, well, I don't want to give away all my good ideas. You don't have a limit on good ideas. We were talking about our mutual friend, James Altucher earlier. You know, your belief that you only have a limited number of good ideas is 100% your belief. It is not the reality. And so try new things. Try experimenting. Another thing I would highly encourage people to do, and I try to do this whenever I get the opportunity, and regrettably, it's not very often. If you're out in the marketplace, you're out doing things, and you experience remarkable service or a remarkable experience, thank the person profusely call over their boss. The number of times I've been in a situation where a waiter or a waitress or a sales clerk has done something and I've said, fantastic, is your, is your manager here? And they immediately go white. They're like, uh, <laughs> why? <laughs> yes. Because usually people just ask that question to complain. I say, would you mind bringing her or him over? And they go and they get him and they come back. And invariably they try to then leave because they know it's going to be. And I'm like, no, 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 please, please. If you'll honor me, please stay. And then I turn and I look the manager straight in the eye and I say, this must be the most fantastic employee you have. The experience I just had was off the charts. I do this for a living. This is incredible. Susie, Bill, whatever the name is, did this, did this, did this. I'm very specific in the praise. Kudos to you for having a member of your team have these skills 
And I just wanted to thank you for the wonderful job that he or she did. And then I turn the focus back to the person and I'm like, this was incredible. And I heap some praise on them. And then I go, why are we so stingy with our compliments? Why are we so stingy with thanking people for the service they provide to us and the care they give us? They felt that the care and the service they were giving was even acknowledged or recognized. Do we think they'd give more? Right. Yeah. You know how it's it's so rare that they hear these things? Oh. That it's something that sticks with them forever. That could be just a confidence booster within themselves that catapults them to do great things. You could change their life. 100%. You could could, change their life with a single conversation that is less than a minute in duration. I fly a ton. So I'm on airplanes about two, two and a half weeks out of the month. And gate agents, God love them. They are <laughs> they are just some of the most poorly treated by their customers' oh, yeah. people. You know, nobody ever complains to the pilot that the flight is late. <laughs> right. Right? The people complain to the gate agent. I've been in multiple situations, way too many to count, where a flight has been canceled and there's a long line of people where I finally get to the front of the line to the harried gate agent who has just been being abused for minutes or hours or days when you have a whole airline shutdown or something like that. And I'll always start the conversation with, can I just begin by saying, I observed you while I was coming up in the line. You're doing an incredible job. I know that this must be miserable right now. And you have a smile on your face. You're doing your best to process people quickly. And as somebody who flies your airline a lot, I really appreciate that. Rob, the number of times that that agent has said, oh, thank you so much. What was your name? Oh, Mr. Coleman. Yeah, we've got you rebooked in the next available flight. And as it turns out, there was a seat in first class that I hope you'll enjoy. And obviously that's not the motivation. It's just, no, that's not it's my just, motivation. It's just a byproduct. It's just a byproduct. Yeah. And to me, the reason I share that story is because this is how rare yeah. we give thanks in the marketplace. And when we do it, People are blown away, blown away. It's little things. It's little things. I mean, we're here at a suite in the Grand Hyatt Hotel in San Diego. And I was speaking at the event and I checked in. And as part of my speaking, they're kind enough to arrange my room. I check in downstairs and the gal checking me in says, I'm actually going to give you two sets of room keys. And I was like, oh yeah, two keys. That's exactly what I'm And she's like, sorry, Mr. Coleman, two sets of room keys. And I was like, oh, Okay. Is there like one that you use to access the floor and then one for your room? And she said, no, your room has multiple doors. So we're in it, we're doing this recording in a suite that, no kidding, has six doors. Six. This was extremely gracious of my host from Social Media Marketing World. It was not expected. And now I have this amazing suite that... When I have the opportunity to do an in-person podcast with you, I can say, come to my suite and we can sit in the room and it's spacious and we've got room and we can do the recording. 20 minutes after I had arrived, a plate arrives with fruit and cheese and breads and some chocolate-covered strawberries and, you know, hey, welcome to the event. Thank you so much. And this is, I want to be very clear, the part of the conversation I'm about to go in right now is meant to illustrate the impact. I have to believe that the total cost to the organizers 
for sending me those snacks and for having me be in a suite is a incredibly small, a drop in the ocean of the overall budget of this event. A, a drop in the 4,000 people at this event. Like this is a spit in the ocean. And yet here we are in a podcast talking about it. And you bet I'll be talking about it in future speeches. It's the little things. We all think it's the big things. It's not the big things. It's the very little things that matter. How can people start being aware of those things? Oh, great question. Come from a place of gratitude. You know, we have a mutual friend, UJ Ramdas and Alex Icon, who created this thing called the Five Minute Journal. They launched it in an event I was at about, I think we're coming up, we're coming up on four years, four years. And the Five Minute Journal, which I highly, highly recommend you go get, you can find it online. Just search Five Minute Journal, go grab one has absolutely changed my life because every morning I wake up and the premise of the five minute journal is you spend about three minutes writing in the morning and about two minutes writing at night. And the first question in the journal asks, and I'm paraphrasing here, what are you thankful for? And I personally have a philosophy of not writing the same thing two days in a row. And it forces me to appreciate all the wonderful magic and blessings and amazing things that I experience all day, every day. If you cultivate an attitude of gratitude, not only does your life become better, but I believe that the universe says, oh, you're appreciating the things I'm putting in front of you? Let me put some more. And it just stacks and stacks and stacks. And I think that's, that's the secret. I mean, you just become more aware of these things. There are things to be thankful for and appreciative of and amazing moments that you're having thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of them every single day. But we're, we're on autopilot. It's funny because I, I do the exact same with the five-minute journal. Nice. And also the same practice of not putting the same thing, which forces you to really start, no matter how big or small, right? Even mm-hmm. the tiniest of things, like... You know, I'll come back from the gym in the morning, walking home from the gym, and it'll just be like a misty morning. And I'm just so grateful of that, just for the feeling of being able to do that, just walking. And it's it's hard to even describe because it's just a moment in my head that you have the mist and it's cooling me off. And it's just those little droplets. It's just taking small things like that and just being immensely grateful for it. It just makes you look at everything differently. Absolutely. Which is powerful. And what I've found, I don't know, I'd be curious if this has been your experience. Things phase me less now. When something does go wrong or there is a failure or there, there is something that doesn't work out, I don't get as emotionally charged because, okay, well, it didn't work out. But, you know, I have these other billion things that I'm thankful for and appreciative of and that have worked out. You know, I think, I think this is a challenge most entrepreneurs have. Most entrepreneurs, if you ask them, detail your failures have a long and lengthy list of all the things that have gone wrong. You ask them to detail their successes, it's a much, much shorter list. They're so hypercritical of each other, entrepreneurs in, in general, as a, as a segment of the species. And we're horrible, general rule here, sweeping stereotype, as entrepreneurs at celebrating our victories. We're horrible. Really good at beating each other, beating, oh, beating ourselves we up. We will though. beat ourselves yeah. up. We will do postmortems. I mean, half the time, you know, the fact that, the fact that in business today, 
we call the meeting after the project ends a post-mortem. <laughs> <laughs> should be indicative enough right. of what's going on. You know, my mom has this wonderful saying, if we knew the power of our words, we would not speak. We need to celebrate more. We need to give thanks more. You know, we're your listeners, you know, the fact that you are listening to this podcast in 2017 tells me you are blessed. You have access to technology you have access to hopefully learning. Hopefully that's what we've been able to provide a little bit here today or, or perspective or observations. That alone puts you light years ahead of where your fellow human beings were just 50 years ago. And this is only getting better. This is only accelerating more. And so I think, I think the thing that will allow the human species to evolve to the next level is appreciation is gratitude is thanks are there things that don't work well in our country and on our planet absolutely i am not living in a rose-colored world where i'm like well everything's great for me so it must be great for everyone else no 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 i i get it but here's what i also know everyone has their challenges and everyone has their moments of glory it's just whether you're willing to recognize both most of us are more than happy to recognize the challenges and we can detail the challenges you know, ad nauseum, can you detail the things that have worked out beautifully? Start making those lists. Changes the game. You referenced Tony Robbins earlier. He also has a saying that you can't be fearful or stressed if you're grateful. Totally. You can't, you literally, you can't have that same state at the same time. So if you're grateful, it immediately removes the stress. It immediately removes the fear. Absolutely. In that same conversation, he will often say, what if, Instead of believing that everything was happening to you, you believed that everything was happening for you. Man, you make that shift. Ooh. Talk about failure. You know, you're, you're in a failure zone and something's not worked out your way. Instead of saying, oh, this life sucks and it didn't work out. Instead of saying, could it be possible that this is a gift to me? What's the opportunity that here? This not working out was meant to teach me a lesson that maybe I was pursuing the wrong thing, that maybe I was motivated by the wrong reasons, that maybe I lost sight of the important things, you know, or that maybe this is going to steal me in the fires to be ready to handle the challenges that are to come. You know, it just, and again, sometimes people, when, when I find myself in conversations like this, they will say, you know, oh, well, you know, that's, that's just semantics. That's poogee poogee stuff that, you know, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, I, here's what I know. It has, and it is, and it will continue to work for me. That's all I know. It's talk from experience. It's not theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. This, I mean, this absolutely is the voice of experience, not the voice of reason. These are philosophies and approaches and belief systems that I have held true to for many years and continue to double down on and reinforce and recommit to day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And the return on that investment has been without parallel without parallel. What are you most excited about now moving forward? Oh, so Projects, many, life, so many things. Yeah, personal. yeah. Lots of great, exciting things. The thing that is probably most pressing on my mind because it's happening in the next week is a few months ago, I felt very fortunate 
to sign a book deal with Penguin Portfolio to publish my first book. Awesome. Congrats. Thank you. Very, very excited. Great group of people that helped me put together the proposal. Incredible agent who was a referral from a dear friend, you know, and I should say some names here to give them shout outs because they deserve it. Tucker Max and his team at Book in the Box helped me put together the proposal and the book. My good buddy and fellow speaker, Jay Bear, who's an incredible New York Times bestselling author of the books Utility and Hug Your Haters. Great books. Go out and read them. Incredible books that are kind of in this customer experience space, customer service space. Introduced me to his agent, Jim Levine, who did a incredible job of getting me the deal. Sarah Stibitz, my antiambulo, which is a phrase we grab from our buddy Ryan Holiday, which is a title for an individual in ancient Roman times that would move ahead of the patron and clear the path, the remover of obstacles, my very own Krishna, <laughs> or Ganesh rather, my very own Ganesh, uh, removing obstacles. All these people have just kind of combined to support and encourage me. And of course, my lovely wife, Barrett, my good buddy, Clay Bear, who's been reading and supporting. And so all of this has come together. It's a long about way of saying that the first draft of the manuscript is due a week from yesterday. So I've got six more days. (laughs) It's come together beautifully. I've been able to tell some incredible stories of friends and clients who've implemented first hundred days philosophies, companies that I don't even know that have done this, companies that were doing it before they even heard of me. So I'm really hoping that the book is a vessel for getting this message out into the world and providing people with a blueprint that is very straightforward and easy to adopt of how to make this type of thinking pervasive in their business and in their life. So that's probably the project I'm most excited about. Like I said, the manuscript is due next Friday. We're going to put that together. We'll do a couple months of edits, and then it goes off to publish, and the book actually comes out in February of 2018. So we're a little bit away from the book actually coming out yet, but all the lead-up work has been fun 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 we'll have to have you back on when it's actually launching next year that'd be lovely i'd be honored so the meat's already done you've finished writing by next friday i will yeah yeah (laughs) yeah no it's it's good i would say a good 90 percent is there right now i'm just adding in more case studies the premise of the book we'll talk through the eight phases that i mentioned earlier in in our conversation today each phase will have its own chapter and then within each chapter there will be anywhere from three to six maybe eight case study examples of companies that are really good in that phase so you can go through and then the idea is to have a matrix in the book where you can say well i work in services and I have a business that is one to $5 million. Here are the case studies about companies that are just like you. I want you to read all of them because I think we can learn from all different types of industries and businesses. And that's why I wanted to write a book that cut across all industries and business sizes because people get skeptical, right? They hear the story of, well, look what Amazon does. And they go, well, of course, they're a multi-billion dollar company with tens of thousands of employees. It's easy for them. I'm a solo entrepreneur in, you know, Missouri, who's, you know, running an auction business. Oh, there's something in there for you too. I promise. Well, we'll get around to it. There's stories for everyone. So yeah, so that's, that's definitely the project I'm most excited about right now. Beautiful. Well, I don't want to take any more of your time, but I sincerely thank you for, for hosting us here in your suite. Oh, it's my pleasure. 
Thanks to the folks at Social Media Marketing World for <laughs> providing the suite where I was able to host you today. And the fruit and coffee you provided at Social yes, Media Marketing yes, World. That was very kind. Thank <laughs> you. So, Rob, it was a pleasure. I really appreciate what you're doing with the podcast. I think it's an important conversation to be having with entrepreneurs. And I was thrilled and honored to play a little, a little part of it and be a guest. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks, Joey. Thanks. All right. You can find Joey at joeycoleman.com. He's at the Joey Coleman on Twitter. That's at the Joey Coleman. And of course, all the links and resources Joey and I discussed, including more information on his speaking engagements and businesses, can be found at the page created specifically for this episode. You'll find that all at failon.com slash zero one zero. And make sure to tune in for the next episode of the Fail On Podcast as we'll be sitting down with Chris Plow on how he was able to build, run, and exit an eight-figure company. Amazing conversation. Chris is an amazing dude. Don't miss it. And as I continue to build this project with the simple goal of getting people to once and for all decide that they're going to fail their way to creating an inspired life, if you could do one thing to support the cause, I'd be super grateful. When you click the subscribe button and leave a rating and quick review, this allows the podcast to be visible to more people. To rate and review the podcast, super easy. Just visit failon.com slash iTunes or failon.com slash Stitcher. That's all for this episode of the Fail On Podcast. For more resources, show notes, and action items to help you find success in your failures, sign up for our mailing list at failon.com. For more actionable inspiration, we'll catch you next time right here on the Fail On Podcast.